Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are continuing on with our block of spooky podcasts in honor of the Halloween season. And what would Halloween be, of course, without witches? One of the classic scary figures of Halloween. A classic Halloween costume. Oh yeah, no matter what age you are, right? A classic Halloween costume. Yeah, I've done it. You have? Did you do it as a a child with the cute witch? Or did you do like the sexy witch (laughs) adult costume? I was a child, but I timed it pretty perfectly for when a lot of my baby teeth were coming out, out. And so I think I did end up looking... Half cute, half (laughs) scary, because I was missing quite a few teeth at the time. Nice. I like it. (laughs) So, I mean, we're we're joking about the costumes and and the association with the season, but this is why, for this podcast, we're taking a look at one of the iconic witch-related events from history, the Salem Witch Trials. Now, this isn't the first time that this podcast has touched on the Salem Witch Trials. We should say that right up front. Candace and Josh did a show in 2008 about something called Ergot and its connection to the trials, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, too. But since this was only a three-minute podcast that they did, and there are new theories emerging all the time about the trials, including a new one that made headlines just this year, we figured they warranted a closer look. Yeah, plus it's one that we still get requests for, and we still get requests for topics we've covered, we figure they might have second legs. So, uh, of course, especially if you're from the U.S., too, this is probably a topic you do know. You think you might even know it well. But just ask yourself before we start, how much do you really know about the Salem witch trials? I mean, we both sort of did this before we got into it. And, and you know, the basic story, but it's amazing how many details sort of get glossed over. Yeah, thinking about Salem and those events in 1692, for a lot of people, conjures up these images of rebellious young women being burned at the stake. But that image is really wrong in more ways than one. First off, it wasn't just women who were convicted of witchcraft and condemned to die in colonial Massachusetts that year. And secondly, burning really didn't have anything to do with it. No, we'll get more into that later. But before we give too much away and go into the theories of why the witch trials happened to begin with, we need to recount the story for those of you who aren't totally sure what happened or do need some brushing up on it. So it all started in early 1692 in Salem Village, which is present-day Danvers, Massachusetts. Salem Village was about eight miles from Salem Town, which was the real seat of local power and became what is today Salem, Massachusetts. So two towns, Salem Village, Salem Town. Got it. So in around January or February of that year, Elizabeth Paris, who is the nine-year-old daughter of Salem Village's minister at the time, Reverend Samuel Paris, and the Reverend's 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams, they both started to act very strangely. For one thing, they started having these sort of raving fits. They would scream. They would throw things. They also contorted themselves into strange positions, and they made weird sounds, uh, For example, they would run around on all fours and bark like a dog. They complained of fever also and pain. So there was an element of actual sickness to this as well, it seemed. Right. 
So one by one, other girls in town, including the 11-year-old Ann Putnam, Mary Walcott, and 17-year-old Mercy Lewis, they all started to suffer from the same symptoms. So, of course, you can imagine all these girls in town not feeling well, acting strangely. The adults in town are concerned, and so they call in the doctor, William Griggs, to examine the girls. He... Checks them out, but is not able to figure out what's wrong with them. None of the remedies he attempts seem to help at all. So finally, he declares that the cause of the girl's, quote, affliction must be something supernatural. It's certainly beyond his powers as a doctor, so it must be from beyond. And at this time, such a diagnosis would have been acceptable. I mean, it sounds kind of like a cop-out now, but according to an article by Jess Bloomberg in the Smithsonian, many people around this time did believe in witches and witchcraft, and they thought that the devil gave witches the power to harm people in exchange for the witch's loyalty. And just as evidence of, of this belief at the time, Bloomberg points to a witchcraft craze that swept Europe from the 14th through the 17th century, thousands of women were executed as witches during this time. So saying that these girls were affected by something or afflicted by something that was supernatural was not an unusual thing to say at all. Right. And I mean, another example of, I guess, evidence of this was that Cotton Mather had recently published a work called Memorable Providences, which described a woman suspected of witchcraft. And apparently one of her victims acted kind of the way the girls in Salem Village were acting, according to Douglas Linder in an article on the University of Missouri, Kansas City's website on the trials. So the Salem girls seemed to fit what was at this point of a pattern for how witch victims might act almost. Exactly. So, okay, if these girls are the victim of witchcraft, say we buy this, they're acting just like victims of witchcraft are supposed to act, and, you know, we believe that this is possible. So who were the witches then that had targeted them? Well, when pressed, the girls named three women as the guilty parties. Tituba, the Paris's West Indian slave, Paris had uh, been a planter and a merchant in Barbados, so the, their slave had come along with them when they moved to Massachusetts. Also accused was a beggar named Sarah Good and uh, another woman named Sarah Osborne who had lived with her second husband before they were married. So she had kind of a scandalous past. Why do all the witches have to be Sarah's? I don't know. <laughs> um, so just going into the background of these three ladies, how did they end up being the ones who were accused? I mean, Dublina, you just sort of hinted at one of them. But Tichibo was an obvious choice because of her background. And uh, it was said that she had told the girls voodoo stories, maybe even practiced magic. Uh, maybe the girls had participated in fortune-telling activities. And perhaps she even encouraged this influence. I mean, on the surface, and especially looking back at it, it seems like uh, fun activities for these preteen girls to be doing. Voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> fortune-telling. Sounds like pretty standard sleepover stuff. I don't True. know. <laughs> Not the voodoo. But, um, the voodoo keeps coming up in these Halloween podcast this year. It does. It's it's maybe our theme of the season. I'm not sure. So, but anyway, Tichiba, her connection to these girls and her background made her seem like a pretty obvious choice for them to denounce as a witch. And according to an article by Benjamin C. Ray in the Journal of American Academy of Religious Studies, there is actually no documentation that names the girls by name and confirms that they were involved in such activities. So, 
It makes sense, but if you actually look for the evidence to back it up, it's not really there. Right. Well, regardless, the three women were arrested and they were thrown in jail. On March the 1st, they were interrogated by magistrates in front of an audience, and they were asked things like, are you a witch? And have you seen Satan? So point blank, it was yeah, put out there. And they were asked in a way that, I mean, obviously the people who were asking them assumed that they were already guilty. They were also put to a kind of test. The afflicted girls, as they were known, were brought before them and started contorting and having their fits in the presence of these women. And this was seen as proof that they were in the presence of witches who were causing their strange behavior. And there was testimony, too. People testified against these three women. Villagers would come forward and offer evidence of things like, my cheese went bad, or (laughs) my livestock died shortly after one of these ladies had visited my home. Um, Very everyday life sort of things, but attributed to the presence of a witch. The women, of course, denied guilt. uh, But then somewhere along the way, Tituba did something really unexpected. She confessed. She said that a tall black man who, to the interrogators, would have obviously been Satan, came to her and wanted her to sign his book and to do his work. And she said she did sign that book, and she admitted to being a witch and also said that several other women, including Good and Osborne, were witches as well and that they had all flown around on poles together. So the three women were kept in jail. And this confession, the fact that she did confess, really did convince a lot of people who were originally skeptical of the situation, skeptical about these girls and their fits and all of it. It seemed pretty legit at this point. Well, right, because why would you confess to something if you hadn't done it, especially something that was this bad? Clearly, your life would be on the line. Right. So... Soon, more girls became afflicted with these strange fits, and many more people were accused of witchcraft along the way, including a lot of women. Uh, For example, just to name a few, Bridget Bishop, who is a 60-year-old tavern owner known for being very gossipy and promiscuous also. Susanna Martin, a woman who potentially stood to inherit a lot from her father. Rebecca Nurse, a pious 71-year-old woman, according to an article in Newsweek by Laura Shapiro, she was the matriarch of a large family. So we can see some similarities to some of, between some of these women here already. Right. But then probably one of the most shocking people to be accused was Dorcas Good, who was the four or five-year-old daughter of Sarah Good, and she was the first child to be accused and thrown in jail. According to Shapiro's article, they had to make a special set of chains for her because the usual shackles were too large. So sad. So the afflicted girls, I mean, you have to wonder, how did this four- or five-year-old girl get accused in the first place. But the afflicted girls in town said that Dorcas had bitten them, had pinched them, said that they had seen her doing that, even though these attacks weren't visible to anyone else. She apparently was in jail for eight months, saw her mother get carried off to the gallows. Really, maybe one of the sadder parts of of an already sad story. So as we hinted in the intro, it wasn't just females who were accused, though. Several men were arrested at this time as well. One was tavern owner John Proctor, who becomes a central figure in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, if you've read that. And he really spoke up at the time. And like others who spoke out against what was going on, he paid a price for that. 
Another man was the village's former minister, George Burroughs, who was living in Maine in 1692. He was accused of being the ringleader of all the witches. Just a note here, uh, this is an example of how it wasn't just people in Salem Village who were affected by this witch hunt. According to an article by Richard Latner in the Journal of Social History, of the total 151 witches whose residence is known, they came from 25 different communities in New England. So not a super local problem. Right. But we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're talking about totals and stuff like that. Of course, once accusations started flying and more and more people were locked up, they couldn't just be left to languish in jail. For one thing, jails were reaching capacity and things were starting to get out of control. So on May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the creation of a new court to hear the witchcraft cases. It was called the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which meant to hear and to decide, respectively. William Stoughton, a friend of Cotton Mather, was appointed chief justice here. And the court was considered kind of controversial, even by contemporary standards, mainly because it allowed something known as spectral evidence. Already sounds sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, spectral evidence was testimony that consisted of things like dreams and visions. So, for example, as an accuser, you could say you were visited or tormented by a suspect specter, and that would be accepted. We're actually going to have another podcast coming up that has some spectral evidence in it. But according to Ray's article, this went against, quote, 30 years of judicial restraint in resolving complaints about witchcraft. I thought that was a really interesting point, that these witchcraft trials of of uh, earlier days weren't as intense as this. They had not allowed so much to be included in the trials. Right, which makes you start to wonder even more about the motivations and things which we'll discuss later on. Well, yeah, and there was another issue (laughs) about this court. Another thing that the court allowed, which was quite lax and quite out of the ordinary, usually accusers were required to post a monetary bond for prosecution of their complaint. So that kept people from just filing countless frivolous complaints, accusing somebody of witchcraft just because, you know, your cheese went bad. And according <laughs> or because to, you didn't like them or, or something because you like didn't that. like them, yeah. Something just an, an everyday annoyance becomes um, a, a legitimate to, to file a complaint if you can just do that willy-nilly. But according to Ray's article, the court of Oyer and Terminer didn't require this monetary bond. So there was just an endless stream of accusations, arrests, hearings for petty grievances people had. The hearings became something of a spectacle, too, almost like a show, because they were open to the community. And at the hearings, like those early interrogations, the so-called afflicted girls were put on display to help prove guilt or innocence, and the accused seldom had a chance in these situations. No, they really didn't. Uh, The first one that went to court was Bridget Bishop's case. She was the the tavern owner, right? Right. She didn't admit to practicing witchcraft, and instead she said, quote, I'm as innocent as the child unborn. She was convicted, though, on June 10th, 1692, and was hanged on what later came to be known as Gallows Hill in Salem. And that's a 
point to to get into. In fact, all of the people convicted in the Salem witch trials were hanged. No one was burned at the stake. That's a misconception. One man who was accused, uh, 71-year-old Giles Corey, was pressed to death with heavy stones because he refused to stand trial. He didn't want to be convicted because he knew that if he was, his farm would go to the state instead of his relations. But Um, he also wasn't about to admit to witchcraft. To witchcraft, yeah. Because he thought the whole thing was kind of ridiculous. Yes. According to Ray's article, some folks followed Tituba's example of confessing and naming other suspects. And you might wonder why they would want to name other suspects. Why would they want to bring other people into this? And it's because they saw that this was a way to get your trial postponed indefinitely. But of course, that just perpetuated the whole thing because then more people are accused and brought into this and web. This is, of course, why Arthur Miller got interested in this in this topic to right. compare it to things that were happening in in his era. But uh, many people were hanged that summer. I mean, the difference between the the people not being burned at the stake. There were still a lot of people who were executed. But by early fall, the atmosphere surrounding this whole witch hunt started to change. And according to Bloomberg's article, both Cotton Mather and his father, Increase Mather, who was by that point president of Harvard, spoke out against the use of spectral evidence. And Increase even wrote, quote, it were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. Um, other people also began to point out the obvious that so many otherwise good, respectable people couldn't all be witches. I mean, come on, how many witches can there be in one town? Seems like a good point. Another point made by Boston Minister Samuel Willard was basically, hey, if the devil can make a specter of a guilty person appear, couldn't the devil also make the specter of an innocent person appear to someone, too? Seems likely. Seems likely. Maybe convinced by these points, or maybe if you're taking a more cynical point of view, because his wife was also questioned in regards to witchcraft, the governor ordered that spectral evidence could no longer be allowed in court. And October 29th, he dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer altogether, replacing it with the Superior Court of Judicature. Without the use of spectral evidence, only three out of 56 accused people were convicted, and those three were eventually pardoned, along with everyone else who was imprisoned at the time. Ultimately, though, it really was too little too late for a lot of people. 19 people had been hanged, one pressed to death, others had died in jail, and according to Linder's article, even a couple of dogs had been executed as witches' accomplices. Uh, several people involved, ultimately, including a judge and several jurors, later publicly admitted that they had been in the wrong. They apologized. And in 1702, a court even declared that the trials were unlawful. And in 1711, a bill was passed that restored the rights and the good names of those who'd been incu- accused. So a lot of backtracking pretty shortly after the trials happened. Right. That bill also gave 600 pounds to the heirs of the accused as restitution. It did take 250 years, though, for Massachusetts to formally apologize for what had happened in 1692. That happened in 1957. All right, so time to get to the theories. Apologies have been taken care of. What happened? And it's interesting 
so much time, so many studies on this, but scholars have yet to agree what really happened in Salem, what was going on. I mean, of course, the whole thing started with these girls acting funny, and that's a pretty good place for, for us to start. There is the ergot theory that Josh and Candace discussed in their earlier episode. Ergot, if you haven't listened to that that podcast, it's a fungus that thrives in warm, damp climates and can be found in rye. And if you eat foods that have been contaminated by it, it can affect your central nervous system, causing things like muscle spasms and delusions and hallucinations. It contains one of the main ingredients in the drug LSD, and uh, hence the hallucinations, and that might explain what some of the girls were seeing. Many say because it had been a cold winter and a humid spring and summer in 1692 that conditions were perfect for ergot contamination of rye grain. It's also said that there had been a crop failure that could have forced the Puritans to eat freshly harvested rye. So Linda Caporeal came up with this theory published in Science in 1976 that ergot was to blame for the girls' behavior. And some other clues point to this as a possibility also. For example, some animals in the area, I think, were also affected in 1692. Some cows died, and it's suspected that they might have been affected by the ergot. But according to an article by Ellen Wolf in Clinical Toxicology, there are also a few reasons why ergot poisoning is an unlikely cause. One, there is no verification of the crop failure. Two, there were none of the constitutional residual effects typical of ergotism, such as weakness, strictures, dementia, so the the after effects, after the delusions pass. And then maybe the best one here, the symptoms of the girls, the afflicted girls, could be turned on and off depending on the audience. You know, they're in front of the three witches they've been accused, and suddenly they're having their, their affliction. Right. That's a pretty good point. <laughs> yeah, because if you actually had ergot poisoning, from what I understand, you can't just turn it on and off like that. Exactly. Other theories, of course, for what caused the Salem witch trials, what caused these girls to act this way and for all these people to accuse their neighbors of witchcraft, they range from gender-related reasons, political theories, to local feuds. Ray's article is all about religious tension, saying that it was a struggle between those who followed Reverend Paris and went to his church and the people in town who were non-church going. And that's where the struggle came from. There are also economic theories. One prevailing theory is that if you look at a map of Salem Village, you can divide it in half. And on one half live the accusers, who were mostly farmers, whose way of life was being threatened by the other commercial and also more secular side of town and the merchant class who lived there. This is the theory I remember learning about in school. It's um, I know I mentioned in our Bronte episode, I could think of that little map with the, the water supply going under the cemetery. I can think of this map, too, Salem Village versus Salem Town and, and how clear it was where the accusers lived and where the accused. Right. Well, the most recent theory has to do with the weather. U.S. researchers, including Emily Oster, who is a University of Chicago economics professor, shows that the trials may have been caused by a spell of cold weather that occurred in 1692. And so, I mean, why cold weather? You're probably wondering. Apparently, witch hunts have often coincided with cold weather because 
people fall on hard times during cold weather. They lose crops, and they believe that witches can control the weather. So obviously, the witches must be responsible for their hardship. I think that's something that uh, Molly and Kristen of Stuff Mom Never Told You mentioned a while back in an episode they did on on witches. The um, hard times coming from external problems like mm-hmm. bad weather uh, coinciding with the, the spike in witch accusations. I mean, it, it makes sense if you look at it from a, from a big picture. But of course, if we look at this story, it means a whole lot more now than what just happened in Salem. And we talked a it little does. bit about Arthur Miller's play already, but it's just fallen into our, our general vocabulary even. It has. I mean, we talked about Arthur Miller a little bit in this podcast, and I know you and Ben mentioned him in the our McCarthyism episode. in your McCarthyism episode because Miller used the trials as an allegory for McCarthyism. But there are other ways in which we've brought this into popular culture, so to speak, as well. There's an article that uh, Gretchen Adams wrote in OAH Magazine of History, and she points out how it's become over the years just a way to, it's a metaphor that is used to just basically malign your opponents in any way. I mean, one Mm -hmm. interesting example she brought up was the Civil War and how Confederates would use it as a way to kind of uh, characterize Northerners and abolitionists, you know, characterizing it as a witch hunt against them. And we throw around the term witch hunt all the time to describe yeah, things. It's, it's always clear what somebody means when they when they use that term. Um, I don't know if, if we should talk about Salem a little bit, too. You used to live in Massachusetts, so I'm sure you have have visited the town today. I did, although I I can't really speak to it that much. I just spent one really kind of short day there because I didn't (laughs) realize, as you should all know, if you ever visit Salem, especially during the Halloween season, you have to make reservations to see a lot of the things that you want to see. And I just sort of hopped on a train with some friends and went out there my first year in Massachusetts (laughs) and wandered around the town wondering what to do and where everything was. And it was very unorganized. And I think we just ended up like having ice cream or something going home. I have similar advice, too. (laughs) I I went there with my now fiance a few years ago. And, um, you know, I was expecting, oh, witch stuff will just be everywhere. I, I don't need to plan for this. I'll just go see cool historical sites. I didn't realize, and this was a little naive of me, that, of course, there is a huge witch entertainment industry in Salem. There is. And so if you just go off the map, you're going to go to the haunted witch house, not the real witch house. I did fortunately end up at the at the main surviving historical site in Salem, which is the um, one of the judges' homes. Uh, you can walk around. You can see where his, his kids slept. You know, they have the crib and everything set up and think, he came home every night after those <laughs> trials into this house. So yeah. it is uh, it is cool that there is some surviving mm-hmm. stuff in this uh, in this city from an event that happened so long ago, though. Of course, there's nothing wrong with going to the commercial haunted witch <laughs> house. I think I would have settled for that. <laughs> well, I don't know. We know how you feel now about haunted houses. That's true. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I would have been freaked out, but... It was during the daytime anyway, so I probably would have been fine. (laughs) All right, so let's move on to some listener mail, Dublina. What do we have today? Well, we have (laughs) another 
frequently requested topic. Very frequent. <laughs> we have a postcard featuring the Dion Quince. We have a postcard here from listener Greg, and it's from North Bay, Ontario, in Canada. And he says, hi, on our recent visit back home, I decided to bring my daughters to the Dion Quince Museum. Theirs is an incredible story. On one hand, it was a story of great hope during a time of depression. On the other, it was a story of exploitation and abuse of governmental power. Add that Amelia Earhart crossed their paths, and it would make this a great subject to cover in your podcast. So thank you, Greg, for the suggestion. Rest assured, we get that all the time. We do. People really want to hear about them. It is a really cute postcard, though. It's one of it's like a hand-tinted card, and so it's five little girls all in mint green dresses with their doctor, I believe. Yeah, and it's a really cool way to get a request because it's sort of a visual reminder all the time, like, hey, do this. Hi, we're the Dion. Do this topic. So do an episode on us. <laughs> it's on the list. So thank you very much, Greg, for that. We also got a really cool postcard from Mongolia, which was from one of our Peace Corps listeners, listener Lauren. And um, I just always like giving a shout out to all the folks we have listening while they're in the Peace Corps. And I'm not sure how many postcards we've gotten from Mongolia before, too. It, it true. Looks, uh, even the postcard looks pretty isolated. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks to everybody, again, who sent cool postcards over the summer and keeps on sending them our way too it's very fun to get camp if you would like to send us a note in another way you can email us at historypodcast at discovery.com or you can look us up on facebook and we're on twitter at missed in history and we do as you might imagine have an article on the salem witch trials you can search for that and type in salem all on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.